0: Medicine has made a lot of advancements over the years, and we're still learning new things about how to treat disease and injuries all the time. But what did caregivers do in the past to help people get well? And what happens when the cases presented are so unusual, there's way more questions than answers.
1: Welcome to You Totally Made That Up. We are a bi-weekly history podcast that tells you the wildest, craziest, nuttiest stories from yesteryear, ones that sound like somebody must have totally made them up. But they're all true, and we especially like the ones that have supernatural, paranormal, woo-woo elements, so those parts may only be true to the people who live them. We don't go for the lore says or the legend goes, though. We want dates and names and all the facts that we can find. Basically, we like the weirdest stuff that we can find. And I am Nash. And I am Tiff. We are your hosts. We are sorry for our absence. If you're new, we were gone for a couple months. It's all my fault. I know you're here for the stories. Who gives a crap about our lives and pets and kids and plants. And I'm with you. Just understand it's on me. It's not Tiff's fault. And then I had yet to transfer some needful things from old laptop to new laptop before it died. And then I have a disc in my lumbar region that has decided to be a bitch. And then I couldn't get to the computer guy. And then I couldn't sit up to record and edit. Look. This has is, this is just been a journey. Nash
0: has been doing her
1: best. I'm okay. trying. I'm trying so hard. Send
0: her all your love. Send her love. She needs it.
1: Send me an assistant. Okay. <laughs> That's what I want you to see. But anyway, this wasn't us being flighty or something. It's my point. We love you. Okay. Some business as of March 2021, there's not going to be any more images in our show notes to accompany references because a friend history podcast got hit with a cease and desist and possible monetary damages over images at their website, which accompanied their episode posts, even though clearly they were for educational purposes. And in my non-legal opinion, I mean, I, I did, I took courses in intellectual property, but in my opinion, these were a clear case of fair use, whatever. In any event, We've removed the ones that were there, and going forward, we're not going to include them. Best we can do is suggest that you check out the provided sources and or do some Googling if you want to see who these people and what these locations and all that look like. But in our absence, once I was able to sit up enough to live and I was able to record from the couch, I got to be a guest on two podcasts in recent past. want to tell you about that real quick. First was Historical AF. It's spelled exactly how you think. The word historical, then AF. And I'd done an episode with them before. That one was episode 84 called The Good, The Bad, and The Mummified. And this recent one was a whole bunch of people they invited back for little blips. It was for their 100th episode called The Super Special Centennial Celebration, wherein I spoke of Benjamin Franklin once more. And I'll just go ahead and spoil you because I had to cut some stuff out of our episode where we talked about him, probably most likely being in a sex cult because it was already too long. Y'all know how I am. This episode's going to be too long. All my fault again. But I'd mentioned in a subsequent episode of ours that one of the things I'd cut had to do with an essay that he wrote about farting. So I finally discussed that. You can hear it over at historical AF.
0: It's very entertaining. They had a very intellectual discussion about it.
1: <laughs> very important and historical. Very important. Then I was a guest on a podcast called Because I Want to Know. It is hosted by a lovely lady named Leslie Fear, F-E-A-R, spelled how you think. It's her honest God, legal last name. It's, It's great. Nice. It's double great because of what I'm about to tell you next about her. She also happens to be a great author of paranormal romance books. And can you, so, you know, creepy type themes and her last name is Fear. It's perfect. It was meant to be. It's meant to be. So if you're into that sort of thing, look her up for that as well what her podcast is about is interviewing people who have interesting lives and they come on and tell their stories. So she heard me on Historical AF and invited me to be on. And when I informed her that I was not at all interesting, she said, that's fine. She just loved me to tell a story of my choosing. I said, oh, good. I will find someone who's interesting. And y'all know me. I went wild, tried my best to deliver. Hopefully you'll think I did. And since I'm a clinician and since it was going to be out around Easter time, I told the story of a woman who gave birth to rabbits, because of course I did. (laughs) Of course you did. Oh my God. So you can find me on episode number 58 called Nash with You Totally Made That Up podcast. Should be easy to spot. So there you go. And this leads us nicely into our topic for today, because in line with Rabbit Lady, we're going to tell you about two people with some weird ass medical stuff going on. Are they gross? You may ask. I would rate them as moderately gross, depending on your level of what makes you nauseated. So how's that for a lead-in?
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: (laughs) Aren't you just so excited to get all squicked out? Okay, Tiff, you're up. Okay, here we go. (laughs) So let's go
0: back in time to a period where it was already a bad time to be a poor, hungry peasant, and let's meet a young man who suffered more than most in that position.
1: Wait, (laughs) I submit it's always a bad time to be more (laughs) hungry. (laughs) I'm sorry. I'm sorry. This is going to go off the rails, y'all. We are sorry. We know we've been talking. We did a warm up that I went ahead and recorded because I had a feeling it was going to be a good one. And maybe that will be available for public consumption at some point. But in any event, excuse us. I'm going to shut up now. Okay, bye.
0: But this guy, he suffered. Obviously, we're going to talk about some medical mysteries and, you know, you can't help medical issues, but we know that we also love seeing the gross parts of medicine. Like, you know, the shows like Dr. Pimple Popper and Monsters Inside Me, that was all about like parasites that were feeding on people. And so prepare for some gross. I know. I, that...
1: have, a, I have a great parasite story. I know. that. That's for another time. That's for another time. <laughs> I have a story about everything medical. So, okay. Again, I'm going to shut up. Take two you're not. <laughs>
0: That's okay. I'm not. I'm not. No. So, I feel like my story is kind of for the people that like those shows. All right. So, those kinds of shows and performances cuz you know, some people exaggerate to just get on TV. Well, they're not new. These kind of strange eating habits and competitive eating, there are stories of people being entertained or interested in this kind of thing for centuries. Like Emperor Aurelius enjoyed watching a peasant spend a day eating roast suckling pig, a roast sheep, and a roast boar, along with bread and wine. Like, just all to himself, just a single person eating all of that. And in the early 1600s, there was Nicholas Wood, the great eater of Kent, who could and would eat massive, like truly disgusting amounts of food. And he was pretty well known for doing so. He was a farmer, he wasn't really a showman. He would, like, take bets and he drew some attention to himself. In one instance, he actually made a bet about how much he could eat. He ate so much that he passed out and lost the bet. And when he awoke from his food coma a day later, he was put in the stocks to shame him for losing that bet. <laughs> Awful situation. So Nicholas, how much could he eat? Was it like 70 hot dogs or whatever, you know, competitive eating is now? No, it was like 60 eggs, a good portion of lamb, a handful of pies. And that's
1: just to start with. You ate 60 eggs and put, and put them in the stocks?
0: <laughs> yeah, that sounds like a bad situation, right? Right? Oh, Yeah, I know. All I could think of was like, that is not the place to be. Mm-mm. So other eating feats of Nicholas include eating an entire mutton shoulder, which included the bones and, yeah, it caused dental problems. In a single sitting, he ate seven dozen rabbits. Or even another time, he ate a meal that was prepared for eight people. Now, he was meant to go on like a little tour, but poor health prevented him from doing so, and so he went back to his farm and kind of disappeared. It's assumed that he died around 1630. And in the meantime, other eating competitions and exhibitions took place. I wouldn't say it was a frequent thing, but it wasn't unheard of. A few examples would be Charles Tile of Dorset, who ate 133 eggs within an hour, along with bread and ale, he also ate an eight-pound leg of mutton with carrots and bread. Another hearty eater that was making his way as a showman was Monsieur Dufour, who, in front of a packed house of people in Paris, ate asps in hot oil, tortoise, bat, rat, mole, an entree of roast owl, a dessert of toads that was adorned with flies, crickets, spiders, and caterpillars. He then ate the candles that were on the table and drank a flaming glass of brandy and, like, opened his mouth so that people could see the flames in his throat. Just awesome. (laughs) Pretty cool, but also, like, nasty. Nasty. I know some people have to eat that stuff. You know, some people choose to eat it. I just, Mm -mm. it's not for me. Okay. So we've established that competitive eating and eating for entertainment was a thing. So what is it that makes Terrar stand out? That's the subject of my story. Get ready. Have like Pepto or Tums or a bucket, whatever you need to have ready if you get a little squeamish. So, eating massive abnormal amounts and types of foods was kind of his thing. And I'm going to put it out right now that this does include eating some live animals. Apparently, eating cats was kind of a thing for a while. And that's not an exaggeration. I came across it quite a few times while researching, and we're going to get there. There isn't a birth record for Terar, and I am not pronouncing his name correctly you guys I tried I tried to practice he's french so it's like that throaty you know but i took italian and so i just want to roll those r's and make it hard so i'm sorry it's terrar that's just how it's going to be every source lists his birth year as 1772 but there's not an actual record and his early life is also not documented being a peasant but we know that by the time he was a teenager he was booted from the family home because they couldn't keep up with his eating habits and not in a normal teenager growth spurt kind of way, but in a literally, I eat my own weight and food every day kind of way. As a teenager, he makes his way in the world the same way that so many other outcasts did as a traveling showman. He's traveling around France with a group of prostitutes and thieves. The prostitutes, they go and do their thing. The thieves would kind of go around, swindle and pickpocket people. And Tarar, his whole shtick is, look what I can eat. And I'm sure that these people were shocked because he was not a very big guy. By the age of 17, he weighed about 100 pounds and he stood at average height, which was about 5 foot 8 or 173 centimeters or so. And he never got much larger than that. He's described as having very soft, light colored hair, pretty apathetic personality, kind of discolored teeth, but also that his skin sags. And it's not a little bit, it's not like a paunch. They said that the skin of his cheeks would sag down like elephant ears and the skin of his torso when he wasn't swollen from the food that he was eating he could tie the skin of his stomach around his waist like a belt his jaw was also deformed and his mouth was very very wide he had lips that were so thin that they were described as almost like invisible people couldn't see them he would pretty much unhinge his jaw and open up and there was like a 4 inch space between his jaws while we're talking about those jaws One of his stage tricks was holding a dozen eggs or an entire bushel of apples in his mouth. And his cheeks stretched so much and his jaw was just that wide that
1: he could actually keep it all in there. He was like a hamster. I know. That's all I'm imagining. Yeah, like an Anik or a Python hamster. (laughs) Somebody photoshopped me a Python hamster. (laughs) (laughs) That I will post. That's one image I'll post. Yeah, that would be
0: amazing. That's an excellent cryptid that you just created. You should make some mythology and lore around it. Anyways, this, it, it is kind of like bad horror movie stuff. Like, I feel like there's definitely some weird 80s horror movie with claymation kind of stuff that his cheek's just stretching. And I'm sorry for anyone who is not comfortable with listening to people chew. Because the sounds that this guy must have made while he was chomping down on basketfuls of apples and corks and stones and other objects. Basically, if he could get it to his mouth, he ate it. And of course, doing so, he did suffer on occasion from intestinal obstructions. One doctor treated him with some intense laxatives. And Tarar was like, thank you, doctor. Would you like me to show you my trick? I would happily swallow your gold watch and chain. (laughs) Sir, <laughs> this doctor is just kind of like, um, "If you try that, I'm just going to cut you open to get it." Tarar was like, "Okay, thank you, sir. Good day. I'm going to go ahead and leave now." I'm
1: like, what? How do you
0: thank a doctor by trying to swallow his watch?
1: Yeah, there's some there's some social skill uh, remediation that needs to happen with tarar.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think he just basically was like, "Can I eat it?" can I eat it? Can I eat it? That's the only thing that was ever going through his mind. Can I eat it? It's said in a few different sources that he would eat until he fell asleep. And then while he was sleeping, his jaw would still be moving like he was swallowing and making noises. (sighs) It's horrible. It's horrible. But he's surviving. He's making his way in the world. You know, He gets to eat during his shows. Of course, he's still hungry because he's constantly hungry. It never ends for this guy. So he's found digging through trash piles, he's eating throwaway bits from butcher shops, anything he finds in the street. But the party tour can't last forever, and the French Revolution strikes up, and Tarar is like, well, I need to do my part for France. So he joins the French army, and he gets sick almost immediately because he's so malnourished by the lack of food. So seeing as he's got to eat more, the army allows him four times the normal food rations, but that's still not enough. And they find him digging through refuse piles and you guys, he was like digging through poop to find uneaten or undigested bits. He really... This is bad. It's this, bad. This is real bad. It's real bad. So not only are they having trouble keeping him out of these garbage piles, but Tarar also is very hot and very sweaty and smelly. In fact, we don't even know if his actual name was Terrar or if it was a nickname because of his, quote, prodigious flatulence. Wait, it's Terrar French for fart?
1: <laughs>
0: well, apparently there's a phrase that went bum bum Terrar and it was used to describe explosions. <gasps> and so it's kind of assumed that that was just a nickname given his, quote, again, prodigious flatulence. A hundred percent. Yikes. So he's gassy. Okay, let's let's add that to his profile. So yeah, he's going to be smelly. But no, his his musk, his scent, his natural fragrance, it's not just from gas. He literally permeated odor. He stank, and this is a quote, to such a degree that he could not be endured within the distance of 20 paces. And they said that there was a visible vapor that came off of him.
1: Holy shit. I can't imagine how he stank. I believe it. Bathing wouldn't wouldn't take it all away. So, yeah.
0: Yeah. So he's in the army. So the military doctors are looking at this kid like, what is going on here? And can we do something with this? (laughs) Two doctors kind of look at him and they're like, well, let's experiment. Let's kind of play around. They keep him around because they cannot make sense of this skinny, smelly kid who cannot gain weight but eats enough for an entire family. So these doctors, Dr. Corville and Dr. Percy, would test just how much he could eat. I mean, they did various experiments to try to control his eating. They would restrict his food. But then on occasions, they would also let him literally at a feast. There was food set out for approximately 15 German laborers that were at the hospital. And they just kind of were like, let's just let Tarar at it and see what happens. Well, he ate the entire meal of two large meat pies, plates of grease and salt, four gallons of milk and bread and whatever else was there and immediately passed out. Now we get to the question of, is there anything that he wouldn't necessarily eat? I mean, we kind of knew from his show that he would eat odd things like corks and stones and watches apparently. So the doctors hand him a live cat And this motherfucker is just kind of like, cool, furry food. (laughs) He rips it open with his teeth, disembowels it, drinks the blood, eats the entire thing, like licks and sucks off the bones. And then like an owl, he regurgitates the fur and (laughs) skin. Here we are back at Owl Pellets. (laughs) Everything comes back to us. Put it on the bingo (laughs) card. So the doctors are like, check, cats are a go. And as they go through, they find that so are puppies and dogs, lizards, snakes, which were apparently his favorite, and eels. He would crush the head between his teeth and swallow an entire eel. Now, we look at somebody who's eating live animals and we're like, that guy, some questionable behavior. Is that guy kind of crazy? But the doctors determine, no, he's not mentally ill. He's just suffering from insatiable hunger. And of course the smell and constant diarrhea which yeah constant diarrhea i hadn't mentioned that yet so here have this delightful bit of information quote when he ate he would blow up like a balloon especially in his stomach region but shortly after he would step into the bathroom and release nearly everything leaving behind a mess that the surgeons described as fetid beyond all conception
1: yeah i will also add here's a fun medical fact for everybody so sometimes Everybody knows what diarrhea is. Got it. Okay, but sometimes you can have loose stools because, like, liquidy because there's an obstruction, and that's all that's able to escape. The liquid is going around the obstruction. So you might think, God, you know, I just I'm having the runs like crazy, but I feel like I I still feel like I've got to go. Like some, well, yeah, you might if you have a really difficult nugget up there or in terars if you have cat hair stuck in terar's case if you have a fur ball up your butt
0: if you have an eel that just can't get through but aside from that no big thing he's all right aside from his complaints of hunger he's described as lacking any force or ideas he's just kind of there to eat the medical experiments continue on for a few months until finally the french army is kind of like um is this helpful is this useful can we do something with this and someone decides, yes, it is helpful. This guy can and will eat anything, so let's use that. To make sure that their little idea works, they have him swallow a small wooden box with a little message to see if he could pass it and keep the message intact. And it works. I am, I am so sorry that somebody had to dig through that and find that box. But now Terrar is on spy duty. They decide to send him into Prussia with another message in a box in his stomach. but Tarar, is no James Bond. He's no Austin Powers even. He is he's just he's bad. He didn't pass as a German peasant because he couldn't even speak German. He was pretty much immediately caught. <laughs> Plus it's hard to lay low when you have visible smell coming off of your body and you're eating garbage all the time. But they tried. They tried. So he's behind enemy lines. And while he's there, he's being beaten and kind of tortured and given his need to eat all the time. It doesn't take a whole lot to break him and have him give up the actual reason that he's there. So they tie him down. They actually chain him onto a latrine and wait until he passes this little box with this message. And he's like, oh man, I'm in so much trouble. This is serious military information that they sent me with. Oh my God, this is what am I going to do? But the message. It was nothing. It basically was like, Hey, did you get this? Write me back XOXO France. It was just another (laughs) test. (laughs) We're just trying to see if he could make it to somebody and get a message back. So the German, you know, the Prussian army, they're pretty annoyed by this. They don't even have it in them to execute him because they're like, this guy's so pathetic. So they just beat him and kind of kick his ass back into France. After going through that whole ordeal. Terar goes back to the doctors and he's begging them, please do something for me. I can't live my life like this. I can't go through that whole spy mission again. I don't want to starve every minute of every day. Do something. So Dr. Percy tries. He gives him tobacco pills, laudanum, wine vinegar, any medicine that they could possibly think of to suppress hunger and doesn't work. They try filling him with soft-boiled eggs, which was apparently another way to help suppress appetite. But Tarar stayed the same no matter what they did. And he struggled to be satisfied with what he was fed while he was in the hospital as they're doing this. So in desperation, he would sneak around to try and find anything that could help. And that's when the cannibalism comes into play. Hello. It's me, the text-to-speech guy. Before you hear this next part... I'd like to remind you that Nash did an entire story about a ship full of men who had to eat each other to survive. I'd also like you to know that she was sleep deprived during the recording of this episode. Tiff is very patient with her. It is still inconceivable that she has forgotten what cannibalism is. There is no excuse. Tiff is a goddess for dealing with this shit. Carry on. He has discovered drinking blood that had been drained from other patients and even eating bodies that were in the morgue. That is, of course, only on the days when he can't leave the hospital to go again eat from
1: garbage piles and scraps from butcher shops. Uh, 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 So add necrophilia. Well, I think we can add cannibalism to the bingo card. Necrophilia is new, though. Hey, is it necrophilia if you eat or is that a different term? I don't know. No, necrophilia is when you're when you're boning, right? Yeah. Wait. Yeah. So then, what is it when you eat? I guess it's just. I um, don't know. Is it still cannibalism? Maybe. Cause like. All right. You keep talking. I'm gonna do some giggling.
0: Okay. I'm gonna do some giggling. Okay. Cause like, wasn't that um that plane with the soccer players that went down and they ate the people that died in the plane crash? Or they like. They were considered cannibals. Cannibals.
1: Right? I guess yeah. it doesn't matter if.
0: I think it's just the human
1: flesh aspect. Okay, we'll leave it there because, on second thought, <laughs> I don't want to Google it. Am I technically <laughs> a cannibal if the person's dead? Yeah. Okay. Because if they were alive, you'd be a murderer. Okay. <laughs> Never mind. Never mind. This whole this whole conversation has been stupid, and I apologize. <laughs> There's the clip. <laughs> This is
0: the episode clip. Uh, All right. So the staff is getting tired of chasing him out of the morgue and being like, hey, stop drinking people's blood and various things like that. And they're like, hey, Dr. Percy, this guy's kind of crazy. Can we get him into an asylum? But the doctor is like, again, no, he has no mental issue. He's just super hungry. Until, until a 14-month-old toddler goes missing from the hospital. And you know who's singled out for that one? Tarar. He never admits to it. I couldn't find anything that says that there was evidence, but it's kind of assumed. And he went to his death with the accusation that he ate a toddler at the hospital.
1: That he, he ate a baby. a <laughs> baby. Get in my belly.
0: Uh, if you're old enough to understand that reference. Hello, friend. Hello. So that's the last straw, and he's kicked out of the hospital then. Four years go by, Terrar's somewhere. Details are not available about that period of his life. But then in 1798, Dr. Percy is informed that Terrar is in a Versailles hospital and that he's dying. They diagnose him with tuberculosis, but Terrar believes that his troubles are now because he swallowed a golden fork that he believes is, again, obstructing his intestines. Either way, about a month after Dr. Percy is notified of his admittance in the hospital, Terrar's struck with terrible diarrhea and dies. Dr. Percy was with him when he died. I'm going to give you a moment to think about the smells that this man emitted while he was alive. Gather yourself, firm up your stomach, whatever it is you need to do, before I talk about how bad things got when he died. Okay, are you ready? I'm ready. All right. So, because he's a medical anomaly, they need autopsy him. By the time they do it, they noted that he had started to rot, and it's unclear as to how soon the autopsy actually took place following his death. You know, I mean, if it's a few weeks, yeah, of course he's going to start rotting. In the notes, it just says that he was prey to a horrible corruption. His stomach, they found, was so massive that it nearly filled his entire abdominal cavity. The esophagus was also unusually wide his jaw could stretch open so wide that, as the reports put it, a cylinder of a foot in circumference could be introduced without touching the palate. I know that kind of sounds like a lot, but remember that circumference is the whole circle. Diameter of that would be just under four inches, and we know that his jaw could open that wide. And if you need a real world example, just kind of think of a softball. Just chucking that right down your throat. Amazing. The doctors could barely get through the autopsy because of his smell. The entrails were putrefied, confounded together, and immersed in pus. The liver was excessively large, void of consistence, and in a putrescent state. The gallbladder was of considerable magnitude, the stomach, in a lax state, and having ulcerated patches dispersed about it, covered almost the whole of the abdominal region. At this point, the doctors had to stop and step away. They could not handle the smell of rot and pus and just everything that was coming off of him, so they ended the autopsy there. And from just looking it up, I needed to try to make you understand how bad everything was. I mean, we think of his general stench that he already had, the sweat and, oh God, the the gas, everything that was coming from his bowels. And then we add rotting corpse. And when I looked up how to describe that, they kind of said, imagine rotting meat on steroids, as well as a mix of ammonia, sulfur, or anything kind of stagnant and wet. So just add that.
1: We're the best podcast. <laughs> <laughs> if you didn't think so before this moment, I don't know what.
0: Just Swirl that all together. Just kind of take that in deep breath. And that gold fork that Terrar was kind of worried about. It wasn't found. Who knows what happened to that thing. But the autopsy's over at that point, they could not dig any further into this man's body to see anything else that might've been happening. So what was going on? You might think that a lot of this could have been an exaggeration, but it's not likely. A lot of the sources and those doctors are pretty well-respected and reported on Tarar. And of course, without being able to examine him, suspicions on what happened are just suspicions. But it seems like probably a mix of things. A few options could be an enlarged hypothalamus, the part of the brain that regulates body temperature and hunger sensations, possibly pica, which is a disorder that causes people to eat non-edible items which could explain some of his eating of like rocks and corks and bones and things like that. Possibly, let's throw in the mix here, an intestinal parasite like a tapeworm that probably helped to aid his hunger and constant malnourishment. Also on the list of suspected issues would be a thyroid condition, Prater-Willi syndrome, which is a genetic disorder that's noted by constant hunger, extreme iron deficiency, or damaged amygdala, which one source explains is part of the limbic system. Here, hormones are produced, body temperature, and appetite is controlled. He may have had chronic infections, and likely that's part of the note about chronic diarrhea that indicates that his body rarely absorbed all of the calories and nutrients that he was taking in, so he was constantly eating more to try to make up for it. And given all the meat, raw and otherwise, that he ingested, He probably always had the meat sweats because the process your body uses to digest the protein in meat causes a rise in body temperature. Once you kind of trail all those things back, it it makes sense, but holy cow, that's just a lot of horrible things happening in one body. So there are bits and pieces from almost all of those that could be part of his diagnosis, and it probably was a combination of genetic disorders and infections that actually ailed him. But I think that all in all, finishing up my story here, that if we look at what was done for him, I think that the doctors at the time did the best that they could. And I think that he had some solid opportunities as far as living his life. You know, I mean, he he found a way to make it. So good for him. Maybe he could have done with less cannibalism and animal swallowing. But uh, I guess sometimes you got to do what
1: you got to do. And that, my friends, is the lesson. <laughs> <That's her. laughs>
0: I mean if you're doing if you're doing some of those things I don't want to know about it. Uh you know, maybe check on the legalities of your region.
1: <laughs> maybe pump the brakes on the whole toddler thing. Yeah. 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 You know, there are there are limits. Oh boy, Tarar, he
0: it's hard to find a story that's gonna beat, you know, him as far as eating. Oh and yeah. having, you know, those kind of digestive issues
1: i vote tapeworm and not having access to enough food due to his do you know what i mean and by the time he got to where he did have access to food like when he was in the military it had developed yeah like you say like a his body was so out of whack by that point
0: Mm-hmm. yeah yeah i don't know i mean it's when i looked through all of the possible diagnosis that they could have thrown at him I'm like, oh, a little bit of that. Yeah, a little bit of that. Yeah, and kind of piece it here and there. But again, without really actually seeing him in action and kind of what was all going on. And without, of course, knowing any of his family history, because like I said, none of that was noted. But good for him as far as being able to survive when he got kicked out of his house and not just kind of.
1: Exactly. Yeah. I don't know.
0: I'm trying to find a trying to find a bright side of this poor guy's life.
1: <laughs> what was this like the fort. what did you say? 1400s, 1600s? What'd you say? Oh, this was 17. So 1772 to 1798.
0: That was his lifespan. So, you know, French Revolution, all that yeah. kind of stuff. But yeah, he struggled. I don't think he ever found love.
1: Uh, no. No. <laughs> all right. You ready to have a different kind of this this there's elements of gross out but i think you're gonna leave mine you know yeah way to go i really do
0: can i spoil it is there any cannibalism
1: no there's no cannibalism. all right all right, all all right. right.
0: better okay
1: there's no diarrhea oh man but but i'll give you a hint <laughs> some there's a phrase that i'm gonna say that i've said before on the podcast and i thought i'd never say it again but all right I take you to Vermont, specifically a little town called Cavendish. And it is September 13th, 1848. We're just south of the town at a construction site with the Rutland and Burlington Railroad where a group of men are blasting away rocks in the ground to prepare for the roadbed. You know, making the land where the tracks are going to be laid as flat as possible. Directing the process was the foreman, a young man named Phineas Gage. Let me tell you a little bit about him. He was born July 9th, 1823. It's thought, for some reason there's debate, but it doesn't matter. He's from Grafton County, New Hampshire. He's the oldest of the children of Eaton Gage and Hannah Trussell, and quote, little is known about his upbringing and education beyond that he was literate. So, a smart cookie we got here. According to documentation by a physician called John Martin Harlow, who will come up again in a major way, he described Finn at 25 years of age as follows. Five foot, six inches tall, 150 pounds, dark hair, tan skin, strong and muscular, very active, always been healthy, and that his personality was nervobiliary which, if you're stumped, so was I. What was meant by that is, quote, active mental powers with energy and strength of mind and body, making possible the endurance of great mental and physical labor. Great. So not only is he smart, he's also a buff Chad. And as noted in the intro, we're not posting pictures anymore, but give him a Google or check out our sources at show notes. Minus the injury we're about to discuss, I think he's a really good looking dude. I mean, I think he's hot. Even after the injury, he's still pretty hot. Anyway. By that description, historical hottie, historical like legit, like he would again, there's an obvious injury that happens, but would turn my head regardless. Just he's, I think he's really hot, (laughs) so I can totally see him with the description that they gave. I can totally see him doing work like the railroad, just the real get in there and get dirty stuff. Can absolutely see him being a construction worker, anything in that type of genre. And like I say, by the time he's in his mid-20s, he's not just laying track, he's overseeing explosive work. It's speculated that this could have started when he was younger, that he might have worked in local mines and or quarries, but we do know that he had worked on the construction of the Hudson River Railroad in New York. About his work as a foreman, his employers said that he was, quote, most efficient and capable, a shrewd, smart man, very energetic and persistent in executing all his plans of operation and that he was, quote, a great favorite with the men in his charge. Very nice. And he was also so devoted to his work and so focused on doing things the best way possible that, of his own accord, nobody asked him to do this, he goes and commissions a custom tamping iron. What is a tamping iron, you now ask? First off, the purpose of this thing is to pack down a blast hole that's been dug and filled with clay or sand, something of that nature, so that it really concentrates the blast you're about to set off. There's also blasting powder in this hole and blasting powder is primarily made up of sodium nitrate, which is, here's some trivia, can be used to cure meats and is something that plants readily absorb from the soil, whether it's natural or from fertilizer. It's eatable. I mean, you know, don't, but it's in the stuff we consume is my point. So it's kind of a two trick pony. And you may have heard of potassium nitrate, AKA saltpeter with relation to things that go bluey and you know, they're kind of cousins in a sense. I'm not going to tell you the recipe for blasting powder because I did not Google it. Because I have no desire to be on a watch list. But back to the holes. You don't think we are already with the stuff that we've had to look up? Fair enough. Fair enough. But back to the holes. If you're like, huh? How does that make a blast more efficient? Digging a bunch of little holes instead of just lining up dynamite and blowing it all to hell. Well, I'd do better if I relate it to something medical like I've seen from my emergency department days. So imagine a firecracker going off on your flat, open palm versus it going off in your clenched fist. That's the idea. You put stuff under pressure, you get more significant reactions. It's not got space for that energy to disperse to. It has nowhere to go but into whatever is surrounding it. Regarding what it looked like, I can't speak to what the standard ones may be, but we've got a description of Gage's custom rod. It's three foot seven inches long, weighs about thirteen and a half pounds, and for our peeps across the pond, we're talking about six kilograms and a little over a meter. At one end, it's one and a quarter inches in diameter, that's 3.15 centimeters, and then it tapers down its length to be just a quarter of an inch on the other, and that's a little over 0.6 centimeters, ballpark of half a centimeter. So it's not terribly large, but it's got some weight to it, and it's very narrow at that one end, and it's pretty much a point. Now, if you're a longtime listener of the show, or you've perused our catalog from time to time, you know that I, on occasion, will say the word foreshadowing. And this here is a case of that. It's a big old case. All right, back to where we started. It's September. We're on site getting rid of rocks so tracks can be laid. It's around 430 in the afternoon and Gage is ready to tamp another hole. Good guy, Gage. He's helping. He's not just bossing people around. Off to the side, workers are loading broken up rocks into a cart. And I don't know if they dropped some or what, but he looks over. He opens his mouth to speak to them. End quote. Accounts differ about what happened after Gage turned his head. One says Gage tried to tamp the gunpowder down with his head still turned and scraped his iron against the side of the hole. Another says Gage's assistant failed to pour the sand in. I think you all may know what's coming. Gage is still saying something and he, quote, smashed the rod down hard, thinking he was packing inert material. Now, metal against something hard, like, say, a rock, can do something neato, which is cause a spark and sparks ignite things that are ignitable, like, I don't know, blasting powder. And in this instance, what happens is, it's, I mean, it's essentially like a gun has been fired, and the bullet is that 13-pound rod that's a quarter-inch diameter. And let me elaborate so y'all are really getting the full picture. Per one of my sources, quote, For reference, a 50 caliber round, the one you see hurling lead from automated machine guns, it's 0.5 inches or 1.27 centimeters in diameter. Using anything bigger on humans is a war crime. So <laughs> yeah. All right. Uh-huh. Remember when I said that it's a good thing one end was pointed? I say that because of what happens next. Because if this had a flat end, it just may have killed him on the spot, because it launches like it has been fired out of a cannon. This three-foot seven-inch long rod drills through Gage's head. It goes in below his left cheekbone. It destroys a molar. It passes just behind his left eye. It goes into the left frontal lobe of the brain, has not lost any speed, and it exits through the top of his skull, roughly in the middle of the crown. Still going, it lands about 80 feet, or 25 meters, away and, quote, stuck upright in the dirt and, adding from another source, quote, embedded in the ground like a javelin. Some witnesses claim that it whistled as it flew through the air. Cannot confirm but can confirm that the rod was bloody and for the second time in the history of the podcast, I get to use these words covered in brain matter. And so, Tiff, make mental note that also needs to go on the mango card. Congratulations, Ash. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Look, I didn't. Hey, I didn't go looking for this. This came to me. The momentum this thing had was so great that it kind of took Gage with it a bit before it exited. And he's thrown backwards. He didn't lose consciousness. He twitched a couple times. Then he gets up and starts walking around and talking to people. Oh, no. Oh, Oh, yeah. Oh, yes. Now, we don't have any reports about any of the workers passing out or pissing their pants or whatever. But I put down a bet on at least one or two. I like those odds. (laughs) Somebody finally goes, my dude. We got to get you some help because mother bitch. And Gage proceeds to climb on an ox cart and he's not chosen to lie down in the back. He's riding shotgun and he's jotting down notes in his little pocket notebook that he uses for work. (laughs) What? What did it say? (laughs) Minor delay in excavation. Let boss know. Commission new tamping rod. Purchase hat.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I feel like that hat might be important. I don't mean to laugh. Oh, my God. Well, no, like that was in my story, too. I'm like, okay, you know, I feel some sympathy. But come on. He's got fucking vapor waves coming off his body. (laughs) Like sometimes, sometimes.
1: The man ate cats. The man ate live cats. I mean, my sympathy meter only goes so high. So no, no, no.
0: But no, yes, this, this is an absurd situation right now.
1: One of my sources says that the aforementioned Dr. Harlow was summoned to the work site. Unsure how long this took, but he finds Gage wide awake and friendly and chatty. Gage recognized him and it said that he quote reassured the doctor. I don't know. I don't know what everybody's so worried about. <laughs> everybody's just looking at me funny. I don't know what everybody's so worried about. What's the problem? I lost my rod. Let's just keep going. I think it's if I pick up my rod. <laughs> <laughs> They're a mile and change from Cavendish, and again, if I'm betting, they get him there fast. I mean, I bet they ran them ponies. He's sitting up the hallway, and they take him to the hotel where he's been staying and park him on the front porch in a chair while somebody gets the town doctor. Harlow hasn't arrived at this point. He's on the way, bolstering my hypothesis that whoever was driving that ox cart was flying. Gage is still chatting with people, and at this point, he has not been bandaged up in the least. I mean, children are crying, dogs are howling, and he's still like, what is all? What is all us fussing about? (laughs) Town physician Edward Williams arrives and, quoting the good doctor, I first noticed the wound upon the head before I alighted from my carriage, the pulsations of the brain being very distinct. Now remember, he's down on the road. Gage is up on the porch, so okay. When Williams comes up to him, Gage goes, Here's enough business for you. And then he stood up and, quote, vomited hard enough that he pushed out some of his brain from the wound oh williams describes it with a smidge more flavor saying quote the effort of vomiting pressed out about a half a teacup full of the brain through the exit hole at the top of the skull which fell upon the floor now now (laughs) i'm
0: imagining one of those like (laughs) play-doh
1: just just, oh i personally think he was exaggerating because because they, they couldn't, you'll see why later, there's more has to be removed and he couldn't have survived if they, if like a teacup of his brain fell on the, I mean, come on. So I think Williams was possibly a little bit in shock at seeing this. So he, he might exaggerate a little bit, but now I'll go on and tell you, it would not have taken hard vomiting. My boy could have sneezed. I assure you, his brain was quite swollen. And I also assure you that it having some space to swell, so AKA that hole versus being trapped in the tight space of his skull is what saved his life. In the hospital, in extreme cases when medication and drains ain't doing it, to relieve pressure on the brain, pieces of skull are sometimes removed. Let's have a timeout and talk brains.
0: Oh yes, let's. Oh
1: yes. So, here's the thing to know about the body. Some things are absolutely useless and are leftover evolutionary crap. Stuff that will most likely, if we could fast forward through time, will be gone. Like, say, wisdom teeth. Then there are other things you can live without. You got to likely take medicine to compensate for the loss, such as if your gallbladder or thyroid is taken out, but livable. Further, you've got your duplicates, two lungs, two kidneys, two testicles, two ovaries. Optimal function may be limited, but you can do all right with just one. I mean, hell, we can even take away parts of organs like the intestines or part of the stomach. And again, maybe not the perfect solution, but it can be done and you can still live. And the other thing to know about the body is that there's backups that will kick in to take up slack. My favorite one to tell people about is how if for some reason you're not blowing off enough CO2 via your lungs, because that's what happens. We breathe in oxygen. We breathe out CO2 and your blood plasma has a high concentration of it. Then not only can your kidneys take up some of the slack via regulating bicarbonate, but you can also fart off some of it. Farts are just, it's going on the bingo card. I've said it throughout this episode. Add it to the bingo card.
0: Classy as always, just
1: leveling up. And so likewise, if the kidneys are failing and there's too much and the blood pH is getting wacky, the lungs will blow off more. Another one is, and sort of related because O2 hitches a ride on red blood cells, but another one is that if an organ needs more oxygen perfusion, the vascular system will kick up a notch and start shunting blood away from the extremities into the organs. Most common one, people will know if you're in a starving situation, the stomach will eventually stop churning and the metabolic processes in your body will start pulling nutrition from your muscles and later on from your fat stores. So if you're trying to starve yourself to lose weight, be aware. It's coming from your muscles first and foremost. So, okay, your body wants equilibrium and it will shuffle stuff down to the level of ions to make this happen. Then we have the brain. Only got the one. If certain parts fail, there are times when other parts will take up that slack. But typically if something's damaged, there's limited compensation that can happen. Limited, not impossible. But the brain doesn't seem to have an efficient backup system like all the other stuff I mentioned. And while we're here, that thing you hear about, we only use 10% of our brain is total bullpucky. If that were true, then logic would dictate that much of the issues with head trauma and strokes and whatever would have little to no effect because it would have to hit that 10% by pure chance to impact us. So, duh. And a twist on this that also goes around is that science only knows how 10% of the brain works. Also not true. Point is, you can lose part of your brain or have damage, certain parts, mind you, Ha, mind you, no pun intended. But you can have damage, such as a stroke, and still function. Again, perhaps not at 100%, but it's not inherently a death sentence. And I have a cousin, in fact, who they're considering doing a modest partial lobectomy on because she has intractable seizures, as in they are daily, usually multiple times a day, in her sleep. She can't drive. She can't go off to college. She can't get a job. She needs to have someone in her general vicinity 24-7. And that is less livable in terms of quality of life than having other potentially mild difficulties due to brain surgery. And she may not have any difficulties at all. It's, it's genuinely hard to say. The brain's, the brain's weird. The brain is weird. The brain is weird. Yes. So let's look specifically about what we know about the frontal lobes. And our buddy, Mr. Gage, has contributed greatly to this knowledge base. And you'll understand more how in a little bit. And we'll speed run this. We're not going to get too into the weeds. I've got a good link for you in show notes. It has a handful of study abstracts on one nice, neat page that is worth looking at if this interests you. So, okay, frontal lobes, largest parts of the brain, they're in the front, as you have no doubt divined from the name, just behind the forehead and in primates, of which humans are included, they're much larger than in other animals and they're what contain what differentiates us, aka language and reasoning. The lobes are, quote, extensively connected with nerve pathways to other areas of the brain reinforcing their importance in a vast array of functions. As such, damage to the frontal lobes may cause a ripple effect to other parts of the brain. Is this necessarily a death sentence if something goes haywire? No, but there's going to be changes to that person, period, full stop. The frontal lobes are also tied to movement, both voluntary and involuntary, and the left controls the right side of your body and the right controls the left side of your body. So if you're left-handed and the right lobe gets damaged, for instance, You may have to start working with your right hand. And when we're talking about movement, I don't just mean getting up or walking. Also think about the multi-step stuff. Examples given in one of my sources being actions that consist of a sequence, like getting dressed. You pick up the shirt, you put on the shirt, you button the shirt. And that doesn't mean the physical part alone, such as struggling with buttons. It's also just the basic order of stuff. Like, you know, you need to put the shirt on, but it's jumbled in your mind as to how to get there. So the actual physical ability might be present, you know, bones aren't broken, limbs aren't missing, nerves are still there. So technically it can be done, but there's a glitch in the matrix in terms of actually doing it. In addition, speech and language are also the responsibility of the frontal lobes and same drill. It may be that you totally go blank on what you're trying to say, the words themselves to express the concept that is, or maybe you've got the sentence in your head, but you can't get it out or it's all jumbled or slurred or whatever when you're getting it out. But let's go back to that reasoning thing I mentioned and the non-physical things that fall in tandem with that, the mental stuff. We're talking about attention, concentration, your working memory. And that's the in real time stuff. Like Tiff says to me, hi, my name is Tiffany. And boom, I've already forgot by the time I'm supposed to say, hi, Tiff, I'm Nash. Then organizing, planning, motivation. When accomplishing something, there's difficulty relating it to happiness. And just broadly, your personality, the stuff that makes you, you. And listen, Not all of this stuff is exclusively frontal lobe. Research has shown through the years that they're, again, complex. But what I'm getting at is that there's a glaring correlation that a good chunk of all this is associated with the frontal lobes. Here's some more goodies. Left frontal damage is associated with a high occurrence of depression, while right frontal damage can equal psychopathic behavior. So when you listen to your true crime podcasts and watch the true crime shows, Keep an ear out for if they mention whether or not the killer was known to have had a traumatic brain injury or head injury of any sort when they were younger. Another giddy sexual behavior. And this includes both lobes. Lateral areas, so on the sides, can sometimes manifest in reduced sexual interest, while frontal damage, particularly in the orbital area, so the eye area, can result in what one of my sources just calls abnormal sexual behavior. Which, I mean, can you be more specific? I don't know what that means. But I think... That varies depending on who you ask. <laughs> that, that's a perspective sort of thing. The gist I get is that they're meaning increased libido and potentially being pretty aggressive about it. I don't necessarily mean assaulting people. I mean, just like, got a bone, got a bone. <laughs> <laughs> the reasoning thing, you can see how that goes along. So this to me is the biggie because it could cause harm to yourself and to others. This is wrapped up with judgment in general, problem solving, impulse control, right row on that one, control of social behaviors, and quote, regulation of emotions and mood, including reading the emotions of others. Here's another tidbit for you while we're here, because I don't know when this ever may come up again. The frontal lobes are the last areas of the brain to fully mature. And I don't mean in size, I mean in function. Broadly, it, and by that I mean all that stuff about reasoning and emotion judgment and decision making. It doesn't have its act together until about the early 20s and for some into the mid-30s. So just just a little sidebar, forgive me. When I'm a bitch and say, not only will I not engage with the willfully ignorant, I won't engage in a battle of the wits with the unarmed. That's what I'm getting at. I'm not going to argue with milk-drinking booger eaters. It's part of why I don't understand. When people date so outside their age range, I mean, by the time everybody's in their 30s and up, I wouldn't blink at a 50-year-old being with a 35-year-old. I'm talking like a 45-year-old with a 20-year-old. Aside from what could they possibly have in common, they are literally not mentally mature. They physically do not have that capability yet. And the majority of our listener base is around our ages, so this won't really apply to them. But in the event you are listening and you're in high school, I, I want to try to give you some comfort here. I know that you get so sick of adults telling you that if you're having a rough time, that things will get better, but we're telling the truth. I know some adults are being patronizing, but those of us with science and healthcare backgrounds are coming from a factual place. And you know, now those who have listened to this episode will be coming from a place of truth. So just, I encourage y'all try to remember that what seems like a huge life altering or life ruining or life crushing deal some things are, some things are indisputably horrible, but the stats are on your side for it not being that way. That in reality, it could be your processing of it. So I hope that makes sense. And it's not meant to diminish your feelings. Your feelings are valid. I'm just trying to give you a perspective and hopefully it helps you go, I can do this. I can beat this. I can get past this. All it needs is time. And of course, to be the fuck out of high school because it's successful. <laughs> And i just, if you practice that mentality, knowing that more development is ahead of you, you are now training your frontal lobes and you will be ahead of the game when you're out and adulting. I promise. I promise. Your brain is still growing. That's exactly right. Just, you got it.
0: I wish I knew that when I was younger. Come on. How come no one told me?
1: Yeah, because you do. You feel like, am I losing my mind? Are these people just absolutely idiots? Yeah, they are. They are. That's legitimate truth. And then also, if you feel like you're going insane, like it's just so intense, that's, that's how it's playing out in you, that not quite at full capability. That's how it's manifesting in you. It's going to manifest in some people acting like idiots. It's going to manifest in some people making the dumbest decisions ever. It's going to manifest in you with hyper anxiety. But that, anyway, you get, y'all get what I'm saying. Just hold on. Hold tight. Back to our friend Finn. Dr. Harlow is back on the scene at around 6 p.m. Where he was in between the work site and the hotel, I don't know. But he's back. And they've gotten Gage up to his room. Here's what Harlow said. Quote, You'll excuse me for remarking here that the picture presented was, even to one unaccustomed to military surgery, truly terrific. So, I guess, I guess he was an army surgeon. I didn't do a deep dive on him. But now that I'm rereading that, I... It sounds like that's what he's saying. I think the grammar's off with whoever transcribed this. I think what he's saying is, even me, and I've seen some shit out in the field, this took me aback. I'm with you on that. Yeah. So, da 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 continuing. But the patient bore his sufferings with the most heroic firmness. He recognized me at once and said he hoped he was not much hurt. He seemed to be perfectly conscious, but was getting exhausted from the hemorrhage. His person and the bed upon which he was laid were literally one gore of blood. That is an excellent phrase. A gore of blood is that like a murder of crows, a pride of lions, a gore of blood? I'm absolutely inserting that into my vernacular now. That's an important mm-hmm. measurement. Isn't that wonderful? I mean, it's not, but it is. Okay, it's, y'all have to forgive me. I'm a bit, I'm a bit gruesome. And well, it's not that I'm gruesome. Is it? I mean, it's why I, I worked in the ED for the majority of my career. It's because nothing phases me like if if you pass out at things such as this you are not meant for that world you need to go work in an outpatient clinic or in dermatology or something I don't know but you're not long for that world if stuff like this totally just makes you pass out but you know and heads by the way heads are bleeders anyhow the scalp is just so vascular and any parents listening you remember the first time that your toddler took a header into the corner of the coffee table so much blood so much blood How you thought all the blood in their little body was going to come out this like three millimeter pop of skin over their eyebrow. You know what I mean? You know, exactly. every parent right now is not in their head.
0: Yeah. My boys have bad chick scars over their eyebrows. Like literally, I know exactly what you're
1: saying. So Finn's a cool customer. And like we said, language processes are up front. The fact that he's even conscious at all is something else, but that he's communicating clearly is positively unreal. Here's what the documentation from the doctors say, and they do everything right. Together, Williams and Harlow shave his scalp around the wound. They clean out the coagulated blood and bone fragments and what they estimated to be about an ounce of, and I'm sorry here, detached brain pieces. It's just, they went ahead and got it the rest of the way off. I mean, it's useless at this point. They go on and put the big pieces of skull atop there. They're not fitting it like a puzzle piece. They're just kind of laying it on top. I mean, it's not like they had sterile saline in containers back then. So good move. And they are keeping things really loose. They close it with a bit of what is called in my source adhesive bandaging. I had no idea that they had such back then. So I learned something. And they only do it partially so as to let it drain. Smart, smart, smart. On top, they've got soaked bandages. And then they loosely cover the whole shebang with a big nightcap, covering that all lightly with more bandaging, including bandaging up the cheek wound. They tell anybody who may be monitoring him to keep his head elevated, and I'm going to say it again because they truly deserve props, they did everything right, even by today's standards. Oh, and I forgot to mention this. His arms and hands were also burnt pretty severely. I, ju- I, I just cannot believe this man survived for even a few hours. Total stud. He was so chill about it. Yep. 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 I mean, it's shock. It, this is, we can attribute 90% of that to shock, but i I, blown away. Harlow stays with him a while. And that night, his documentation says of Gage that his mind remained clear and that he said he didn't want to see anybody because he'd be back to work in a few days. I love this guy. I love this guy. But Harlow notes that there was, quote, constant agitation of his legs being alternately retracted and extended. So here we go. We got our early signs of movement issues. And like I say, not to mention, he's finally going into shock. He's clearly in mental shock, but you know what I mean. He makes it through the night. Next morning, his mother and brother have arrived, and he recognizes them. However, second day, he gets loopy. Fourth day, he is described as rational. Fast forward a week, and Harlow was like, he just might recover okay. Welp, fast forward again, day 12. Gage has gone what they call semi-comatose, and my reading of that is that this is more severe than fading in and out of consciousness. I get the impression that they mean when he was out, they couldn't hardly rouse him. On top of that, he would rarely respond when people spoke to him, and by day 13 and 14, he is markedly weak. His breathing is ragged. They can barely get food and water into him. Then the swelling kicks up a notch. His damaged eye is starting to protrude as his brain matter through the skull hole, and hoo boy... Are they seeing signs of fungal infection? Harlow writes, The friends and attendants are in hourly expectancy of his death and have his coffin and clothes in readiness. But Harlow, who in my opinion is the hero of this story, he is all, Fuck this noise, I'ma save a life. He drains the abscess that's built up in Gage's face under his skin on his forehead. He cuts off the fungus that's in the cranial wound. He applies what they call caustic, and all that is is silver nitrate, which is still used for certain things today. Lots of times on burns, actually. It's got good antimicrobial properties. So Harlow's basically shutting that growth down. Day 24. Gage is able to sit up under his own power and take a step and be helped into a chair. This is also perfection. You got to get people up and moving as soon as you can, even if it's just a little bit. We jump forward another month. He quote, went up and down stairs and about the house and onto the piazza, a.k.a. out onto the veranda. He was also really motivated to go home to his family, who were still back in New Hampshire. And they, (laughs) this is great. They caught him outside without his coat in the rain, just starting down the road, that little shit.
0: Bye. I'm going home. Bye.
1: (laughs) Now, there was a severe fever at one point, as you can imagine, but this absolute machine of a man just keeps bouncing back. And by mid-November, November, November, y'all, this happened in September. He feels Gage may legit recover if, quote, he can be controlled. (laughs) Whatever could this possibly mean? Well, I mean, he's dashing out the door like a toddler every now and then. But here's specifically what they mean. So let's hear from Harlow again. And I know I'm quoting him a lot, but Harlow's just nailing this, both his treatment and his notes. So, quote, he is fitful, irreverent, indulging at times in the grossest profanity which was previously not his custom, manifesting little deference for his fellows, impatient of restraint or advice when it conflicts with his desires, at times pertinaciously obstinate, yet capricious and vacillating, devising many plans of future operations which are no sooner arranged than they are abandoned in turn for others appearing more feasible. A child in his intellectual capacity, he has the animal passions of a strong man. Previous to his injury, although untrained in the schools, he was possessed of a well-balanced mind. In this regard, his mind was so radically changed, so decidedly, that his friends and acquaintances said he was no longer Gage. So Finny boy is feisty. <laughs> <laughs> By late November, Carlo gives a go-ahead that Gage is well enough to make the trip to his parents' home. Late December, he's noted as improving mentally and physically. By February of 1849, quote, he was able to do a little work about the horses and barn, feeding the cattle, etc. And as the time for plowing came, which was about May or June, he was able to do half a day's work after that and bore it well. All right, time moves on. It's documented that in August, his mama told his local doctor that, quote, his memory seemed somewhat impaired, though slightly enough that a stranger would not notice. We'll take it. We will take it good for him. They take him back to Cavendish so that he can see Dr. Harlow in April of the same year and the doctor notes that the vision is completely gone in that left eye and his eyelid is permanently drooped over it So when I talk about what he looks like it's it's not bad y'all you can see like just below his hairline and leading up and you know going further but then it's hidden by his hair flopping down a little bit over his forehead is that big scar but again it's not awful it's really not. And then the eye is closed. That's really it. I mean, you, you would never know. And I, I cannot believe that he didn't lose the eye. And as far as the main head wound goes, the scalp is healed over. The skull has started to adhese to the surrounding bone. But it's still a little sticky-uppy if you look closely at his hair. But remember, a chunk of skull got destroyed. So there's a little dip behind that raised place. And surprisingly, it ends up just being a couple of inches in circumference. He's partially paralyzed on the left side of his face because of all the nerve damage where it went through his cheek, but not horribly by the way they describe it. And Harlow notes, his physical health is good, and I'm inclined to say that he has recovered, has no pain in his head, but says it has an odd feeling, which he is not able to describe. I believe it. But here's a weird thing. Even though there were tons of witnesses, you know, and two doctors documenting all this, And of course, Gage himself being able to be like, hey, a tamping rod sailed through my noggin. For whatever reason, some professionals in the medical world were like, this isn't possible. Maybe you got stung by a bee or whatever the shit they were thinking. And he still had the rod, by the way, kept it. Matter of fact, he kept it with him the rest of his life. So in November, and we're now a little over two years from the incident, a Dr. Bigelow, who's the head of surgery at Harvard, brings Gage to Boston to basically see for himself. He is convinced and presents Gage to the latest med school class, and also something called the Boston Society for Medical Improvement. And here's something that I feel compelled to share with you all. Also at this meeting, Bigelow presented, quote, a stalagmite, which was remarkable for its singular resemblance to a petrified penis. (laughs) Okay. So that's the level we're at. Mm-hmm. Science. Science. In any event, word is spreading in the medical community about this seemingly impossible survival and the changes in him mentally. That's what I meant when I said that Gage contributed more than he'd ever know to advancements in learning how parts of the brain function, because there was no other documented case like this, at least not of someone living long enough to observe how they function in the long term after such an injury. Science can now start relating personality changes, amongst other things, to the front left part of the brain. And that could potentially also go toward explaining if people were like, Billy got kicked in the left side of his head by a cow when he was out there milking, and he ain't never acted the same since. (laughs) So, closed head trauma as well. Point is, as one of my sources puts it, quote, Gage may have been one of the earliest examples of a patient entering a hospital primarily to further medical research rather than for treatment. And so Finn, as he stated from the rip, was wanting to go back to work. But he couldn't do the railroad gig anymore, obviously. So he somehow gets involved with a place called Barnum's American Museum in New York City. And don't get confused. This isn't anything to do with the Barnum Circus. There's no evidence that shows he was a circus attraction. But I looked into this, and yes, it was P.T. Barnum who started it. We're not going to go down this road because we are at some point going to do an episode on him. So this will undoubtedly come up. But this was a bit of a different jam. It's not traveling. It's at a corner of Broadway where the financial district is now. Lasted from 1841 to 1865 and was quite successful. And I'll just read to you real quick what Wikipedia says in the intro of their article on it. Quote, the museum offered both strange and educational attractions. Some were extremely reputable and historically or scientifically valuable, while others were less so. Like I say, we'll get into that some other time. But clearly, Gage would have fallen into the legit category. Having said that, get your gag reflexes ready. One of my sources says that, quote, for an extra dime, skeptical viewers could part Gage's hair and see his brain pulsating beneath the scalp. hmm Yeah, that's the stuff. That's what I want to take my children to. He's then (laughs) talking. What? (laughs) What?
0: Uh, uh, You're just imagining it? I'm just imagining that, you know, it's just, let's go see the pulsating skull. That's just the family trip for the day. What are we doing today? Oh, we're going to go look at the skull and see the brain pulsing. All right. And then you're going to fucking write letters about it and send those to your cousins in Europe. And it's going to be the talk of the family for the next year. I'll
1: tell you what. Well, and then we're going to go to a science lecture and look at a stalagmite that looks like a penis. I don't, I don't even, I don't even. Okay. But they were so bored. They were so bored back then. They had the time. Mm-hmm. And they had the time. He's then documented. I mean, there's advertisements that have been found. He made public appearances around New Hampshire and Vermont, and there's pictures of him posing with the tamping rod. So my assumption would be that he brought it with him. And Bigelow, the Harvard dude, had said about this that Gage was, quote, a shrewd and intelligent man and quite disposed to do anything of that sort to turn an honest penny. So this wasn't about fame. It was about him doing what he could with what he had where he was. But apparently it got old, and after a while, he gets back to non-celebrity work, as it were, and he works for the owner of a stable and coach service in Hanover, New Hampshire, for about 18 months. We're now in 1852, so we're four years out. Finn gets an invite from an entrepreneur going down to Mexico because of a gold rush happening at the time to work as a driver for long-distance stagecoach trips down in Chile, where he cared for the horses, yeah, but is also driving a route called the Valparaiso-Santiago. And time out for all of you Spanish speakers. I did take the time to look this up. And the best answer I found regarding the pronunciation was as follows. If you are an American, chili. If you are Hispanic, Chile. If you say Chile, you sound like someone with a really bad American accent trying to say it with a Spanish pronunciation. <laughs> I, liked, I liked that answer when I found <laughs> it. So chili, it is. Now, I looked into this route because I had to know what kind of trip this would be. In present day, this is called Chile Route 68, and all nice and paved, it is about 68 and a half miles long, or a little over 110 kilometers. Uh, Wow, already. It also said that it will take you through several tunnels. There's a mention of a coastal range, and the kicker for me, the final stretch of Route 68, named Santos Osa, makes a steep descent into Valparaiso. And I'm, I know I'm butchering that. And I, I, y'all don't know what I've cut out of this, me saying this 500 times. <laughs> doesn't matter. That's the last time I'm going to say it. The word steep is what really leaps out for me. I don't know about y'all. And that's today. I can't fathom back then. And I just, you don't want somebody with a recent past traumatic brain injury doing this kind of thing. You just don't. What he was navigating sounds like a not easy route. And what he was driving was described as a coach heavily laden and drawn by six horses. God almighty. I will say, though, it's documented. That sounds terrifying. It sounds terrifying right now. Me sitting here. I'm terrified. I'm not even in it. He's not even driving it. And I'm terrified. (laughs) I will say that it's documented that in terms of social norms and interacting with people, he was fine. So in terms of mentality, not much to say about it. He was kicking it. But there's still the damage and the physical element. And like we talked about, the body will compensate for inefficiency the best it can. But the brain is a special beast. Okay, so we're about to get hazy with dates because a lot of this is coming from Harlow's notes. And while he communicated with the family off and on, it seems, it's noted that he says he lost track of Finn for several years somewhere in there. So just keep that in mind that a lot of the rest of this is ballparking. All right. He starts having seizures. No way he ain't been having them throughout. Just there's no way. But apparently, these are significant enough and regular enough that they put the kibosh on him driving coaches. And so after seven years on this job, very impressive, he goes to San Francisco because the family had relocated there to be as close as they could to him while he was in Mexico. I mean, the Gage family is just phenomenal. They're so supportive. I, I love them. This is said to be in about 1859. Again, uncertain. But point is, he has been in Mexico for a decent bit of time. And the mother describes him when he gets back as, quote, in a feeble condition, having failed very much since he left New Hampshire. He had many ill turns while in Valpar- Oh, I do have to say it again, while in Mexico, especially during the last year, and suffered much from hardship. Then, after he gets back on his feet somewhat, he was said to be, quote, anxious to work, and he goes to Santa Clara, California, to work on a farm. Early 1960, I saw two differing things. One saying he lost his job due to the seizures, which continued to increase in severity and amount. But then another says that one particular day that the plowing was too hard on him. So my, what I'm inferring from that is that it contributed to a whopper of a seizure and he knew it was time to quit. He goes back to San Fran and here's the thing. Like I said, no way he's not been having at least little seizures on and off throughout the years. No doubt in my mind, but the working and the traveling are exacerbating it to be sure. Because seizures can be triggered by myriad things, flashing lights, when you're driving, the sun coming through the trees in your peripheral while you're, you know, you're driving and it's hitting rapidly through trees and it kind of creates a flashing effect. There's alcohol, there's drugs, there's not getting enough sleep, spikes in emotion, whether negative or you just get to laughing too much. I mean, I could go on. It, everybody has their specific little triggers. And in this case, it's not faulty connections of some sort. It's not, we're not talking chemical or whatever. He has missing connections. And as we've covered, there's just some things the body can't compensate for. Having said that, in terms of quality of life, all his going and doing and working was beneficial. I think it contributed to the seizures, but it, you can't deny how beneficial it was. One of my sources talking about how what we know about his functionality and behavior in the years after the accident, quote, implies that his most serious mental changes were temporary so that later in life, he was far more functional and socially far better adapted than in the years immediately following his accident. And they mentioned that it's also likely that his lengthy time as a stagecoach driver in Chile, quote, fostered this recovery by providing daily structure that allowed him to regain lost social and personal skills. And sure, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm not riding while he's driving, but sure. And here's the thing. If you know anything about helping people get their lives back after traumatic brain injuries best they can, a lot of it, other than physical and occupational therapy, I mean, a lot of it has to do with mental exercising and routine. And so here's what a typical day would have looked like for him. According to Malcolm McMillan, he's a professor of psychology, and he's done extensive research on both Gage and Dr. Harlow kind of fact-checking Harlow and cross-referencing things to get a more nailed down timeline and descriptions of how Finn changed and whatever. So a typical day was get up early in the morning, prepare yourself, get yourself groomed, and then you groom and feed and harness the horses. He had to be at the departure point at a certain time, load the luggage, charge the fares, get the passengers settled. Then he had to care for the passengers on the journey and load their luggage at the destination and look after the horses again. Macmillan commenting that, quote, The tasks formed a structure that required control of any impulsiveness he may have had. Then on the trip itself, Macmillan talks about how Gage had to possess foresight. I mean, he had to know the route really well, first of all, and then he had to plan ahead for curves and inclines, moving around other coaches, all that stuff. And as I thought, Macmillan notes that, yeah, while parts of the route were, quote, well made, others were dangerously steep and rough. Continuing, he points out how this constant daily practice with memorization and routine and structure and demonstrating said foresight and planning resembles the rehab that TBI patients are run through today. And regarding that mention I made of him acting normally, if you do a cursory search of this story, you might come upon it being said that Finn just went wild like cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. There's a great list in the wiki about this supposed behavior, and I shall share it with you. So, okay. Some of the things that have been said about him are that he mistreated his wife and children. He did not have a wife or children. Inappropriate sexual behavior, promiscuity, or impaired sexuality. Lack of forethought, concern for the future, or capacity for embarrassment. Parading his self-misery and, quote, vainglory in showing his wounds. Gambling to the point of bankruptcy. Responsibility, untrustworthiness, aggressiveness, violence. Vagrancy, begging, drifting. Lying, brawling, bullying. I mean, so far, a lot of that list sounds like bullshit. Oh, it's very much, it's very much bullshit. Like, (laughs) where is this coming from? And some of it's like, how would you even know? So Here we go. Inability to make ethical decisions. How would you know? Loss of respect for social convention. Living as a layabout or a boorish mess. Alienating almost everyone who had ever cared about him. And that he died, (laughs) this is the best, due to a debauch. And what I gather is that they mean he drank himself to death or died on top of a hooker. I really don't know.
0: (laughs) That was very vague. See, like, he could, like, he could have, you know, for after the injury, he had just been like, I'm just going to lay in bed. That's going to be my life now. Fuck everything else. I don't want to have to work that hard to, you know, Mm -hmm.
1: live my life again.
0: But instead he's like, I gotta go to work, man. Are you guys going to let me out of here? Like, what's going on with this? Yep.
1: I understand what's going on. Yeah, I mean, he was that way from the rip. He wanted to get up and go and do. Now, none of this is corroborated by anything, or else it is directly opposite. Screw those people spreading these rumors about my boyfriend. I don't like you. Suck it. So, the seizures got bad. Real bad. On May 20th, early that morning, his mother finds him having a severe seizure, and the way it's conveyed, he's unresponsive. They call the doctor to come. Doctor bleeds him. Jesus wept. That is, y'all, that is my least favorite thing, medical thing that was done way back when. And you'll hear people say, they do it nowadays. No, they don't. It is such a finite percentage when it is done. It is, it is, I'm not even going to get into it, why it's done and when it's done. And it's, trust me, 99.999999 times out of 10. (laughs) Out of a hundred. Are you trying to say that blood belongs? That blood belongs in the body? Yeah, that's what (laughs) I'm trying to say. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. If you insist. Yes. Matter of fact, I do insist. Then he's coming in and out. The seizures keep happening throughout the day and night. And according to his obituary in the New Hampshire Statesman, Phineas died on May 21st, 1860. He was 36 years old. And according to the record book of the Lone Mountain Cemetery in San Francisco, he was buried on May 23rd. Dr. Harlow didn't hear of his death until 1866, and he gets hold of the family. He asks them if they would give permission for Phineas to be exhumed so that his head could be examined for scientific education. They agree, bless them, and they get it to Harlow, who in turn ends up donating it to Harvard. Beth Gage's skull and his tamping iron are on display at the Warren Anatomical Museum, which is within the Harvard Medical School Library, and you can go visit it should your heart desire. His body now rests in the Cypress Lawn Memorial Park in San Francisco. Too close, I want to read to y'all something very sweet that was said about him. Phineas was accustomed to entertain his little nephews and nieces with the most fabulous recitals of his wonderful feats and hair-breadth escapes, without any foundation except in his fancy. He conceived a great fondness for pets and souvenirs, especially for gifting to the children and for horses and dogs. It was only exceeded by his attachment for his tamping iron, which was his constant companion during the remainder of his life. And that is your story of the utterly amazing Phineas Gage.
0: Our stories were on very opposite spectrums of hopefulness.
1: (laughs) (laughs) No, no, listen, listen. Here's the lesson. Don't eat everything within your grasp, including but not limited to eels, forks, toddlers, (laughs) etc. And maybe give the hole a glance to make sure it's not just straight blasting powder before you stick your rod in it. That's a euphemism if I ever... Okay. (laughs) Yeah, I know. I heard it after I said it.
0: Solid advice, kind of no matter where you're
1: taking that. Well, you know, it's on the line of don't stick your dick in crazy. So, yeah, yeah, there you go. Don't stick just anything in your mouth. Don't stick your rod before you look. Yeah. Yeah, we're done. We're done, folks. That's, that's, uh, yeah, let's cut it there. That's it. We're good. Keep listening. Like we say, you'll hear how to get hold of us. Uh, if you want to send me that, what did I say? Hamster Python hybrid Photoshop, it's great. Get crazy with that. you don't have to. Don't got to. As I tell my dog when I ask him to do things, don't got to, but if want to. <laughs> when I'm trying to coerce him into something, <laughs> that's my very. Does it work? That's my very southern way. Yeah, sometimes it does. Yeah, all right. I'm like, come on, let's go pee. Don't got to, but if want to, and he'll just kind of look at me. I'll go pee. He's pretty good about it. He's pretty good about it. He just looked over his shoulder at me like, you want me to go pee right now? No, I don't. You're in the house. <laughs> that's it. This is where the catchphrase goes. Bye.
0: Thanks for listening. As a reminder, you can check out our sources for each of the episodes at our blog, along with any other supplemental things we think you might enjoy. Just head over to youtotallymadethatup.tumblr.com and in the menu, click on show notes.
1: We're also on Twitter at ytmtu podcast and on Instagram at you totally made that up. You can contact us at any of those places, and you can also email us. That address is youtotallymadethatup at gmail.com.
0: We love hearing from you, whether it's ideas for episodes, your own personal or family stories, telling us what we can do better, and telling us what we should keep on doing.
1: And if you're enjoying the podcast, please consider taking a moment to rate and review on your platform of choice. Or if you know someone who may like our content, send them our way. We're so grateful for our listeners and would love to add
0: even more people to our wild podcast family.